Good evening. Peru's protests turn deadly as elections are called two years early. Los Angeles has a new mayor, job one, a state of emergency to deal with the unhoused crisis. African leaders come to Washington and an activist calls out Saudi Arabia's treatment of LGBTQ people to a gay State Department spokesperson. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Monday, December 12th, 2022. Peru's new president, Dina Boularte, announced this morning she submit a bill to Congress calling for presidential elections to be held two years early. The dramatic TV address to the nation was made after at least two teenage protesters were killed in riots that broke out across the world's second largest copper-producing nation, a nation that's also become a hotbed of political instability, with six presidents in six years, including three in a single week in 2020. Boularty was sworn in last week after former President Pedro Castillo was sacked by Congress and arrested for trying to dissolve the legislature and prevent an impeachment vote against him. The president said in her speech broadcast live, I have decided to present a bill to reach an agreement with Congress to bring forward general elections to 2024. But Peruvians say the removal of Castillo was the last straw for the poor of a diverse nation spanning rainforest mountains and large cities. One young woman who whose brother was killed in protests in the Andes, told the camera, my mother is very hurt because my brother has been killed. Like in a slaughterhouse, he was a student athlete. My mom asked for justice. Another resident said, we are not communists. We just want justice. Nosotros no somos ni comunistas, nada, somos el pueblo organizado que queremos una nación libre de corrupción que nos permita sacar y salir de este subdesarrollo, de este colonialismo que seguimos viviendo. Internet videos show fistfights breaking out today on the floor of Peru's Congress. Former President Donald Trump said yesterday he turned down a deal to release former United States Marine Paul Whelan, who's been detained by Moscow since 2018. Trump said on Truth Social he had a chance for a one-on-one swap of the so-called merchant of death for Paul Whelan, adding, I would have made the deal for 100 people in exchange for someone that's killed untold numbers of people with his arms deals. Nevertheless, despite Trump's interest in the Griner swap, Trump's former national security advisor, Fiona Hill, said Trump wasn't interested in Paul Whelan, adding Trump wasn't interested in any wrongful detention cases. Today, Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, said the president is still committed to getting Whelan, who was sentenced to 16 years for spying in 2018, out of Russia. You'll understand that I can't get into the specifics of the kinds of things that we are contemplating to try to ensure that we get Paul home as soon as we can. I will just say that the conversations with Paul Whelan's family have been substantive. They have had a number of 
very good questions and also a number of suggestions that they've put forward. And we have been working to figure out what it is going to take to ultimately secure his freedom and how we can go about getting that and being able to sit down with the Russians and work out a deal. The specifics of that are something that really have to be kept uh, in the sensitive channels, the sensitive conversations we have with the Whelan family, and then the sensitive channels that we have with the Russian government. But we are bound and determined to ensure uh, that we uh, work through a successful method of securing Paul Whelan's release. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, lawmakers have until midnight on Friday to pass legislation to keep the government running or face a shutdown. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said on the Senate floor today that Congress will try and pass a short-term funding bill known as a Continuing Resolution, or CR, this week. Members should be prepared to take quick action on a CR, a one-week CR, so we can give appropriators more time to finish a full funding bill before the holidays. I'm optimistic we could take action on a CR rather quickly and avoid the shutdown that neither side wants, and that is a one-week CR. The benefits of an omnibus are as many as the number of citizens in America. All of us are better off when the government is fully equipped to provide vital services millions rely on. One group who very much needs an omnibus are our veterans. Last week, the VA wrote Congress a letter warning that a CR would mean a $10 billion shortfall for the VA. That means fewer health care workers on the job. It would mean a surge in the backlog of claims. And God forbid it would throw a wrench in the VA's plan to implement something we were all so proud that we passed on a bipartisan basis this summer, the PACT Act. There is no reason we need to go down this road. The brave Americans who have served our country in uniform should never have to suffer the consequences of failing to fund the government. But unfortunately, that's the risk they face as of right now if we don't finish the job. Republicans say one of the biggest holdups to an agreement is a $25 billion gap between the two parties over discretionary spending. And Los Angeles swore in its first black woman mayor and just second black mayor in its history today. Former Representative Karen Bass is now Mayor Bass, and she announced her first major initiative during her acceptance speech. Bass declared the crisis of unhoused people on the streets a state of emergency. I, Karen Ruth Bass, I, Karen Ruth Bass, do solemnly swear, do solemnly swear, that I will support the Constitution of the United States, that I will support the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of the State of California, the Constitution of the State of California, and the Charter of the City of Los Angeles, and the Charter of the City of Los Angeles, and that I will faithfully discharge the duties, and I will faithfully discharge the duties of the Office of Mayor, of the office of mayor. According to my best ability. According to my best ability. Madam Mayor. (laughs) Tomorrow morning, I will start my first day as mayor at the city's emergency operations centers, where my first act as mayor will be to declare a state of emergency on homelessness. A state of emergency on homelessness. And yes, that's Vice President Kamala Harris administering the oath of office to Mayor Bass.
Mayor Karen Bass of Los Angeles, the nation's second largest city. The mayor's declaration requires city council approval, but gives her the ability to expedite new interim housing and a plan to get the most vulnerable off the streets as winter weather sets in. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. You can hear the news at pauldurienzo.com. In Washington, beginning on Tuesday, a three-day gathering of over 40 African heads of state is being feeded by the White House. The U.S.-Africa Summit is the second since 2014, hosted by then-President Barack Obama. The U.S. has been competing with China on the continent, but China remains by far the bigger trading partner, with $261 billion in business and a growing debt burden to the world's second-largest economy. In contrast, U.S. trade with Africa is barely 1% of U.S. commerce at $64 billion per year. Russia is the region's largest arms dealer, and Turkey and the United Arab Emirates are also building infrastructure in numerous countries, including war-ravaged Somalia. On Monday, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the U.S. is poised to provide Africans with billions. Working closely with Congress, the U.S. will commit $55 billion to Africa over the course of the next three years across a wide range of sectors to tackle the core challenges of our time. These commitments build on the United States' longstanding leadership and partnership in develop, development, economic growth, health, and security in Africa over the past three decades. You'll be hearing a number of announcements over the coming days, uh, specific deliverables in a number of different areas, new projects and initiatives, new funding streams. Uh, but our commitment to Africa extends well beyond all of that, too. It's reflected in our decades of meaningful engagement, people-to-people ties, and high-quality investments in our shared future. And really, the spirit of this summit is not what we will do for African nations and peoples, but what we will do with African nations and peoples. We will have a new special representative for U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit implementation. The State Department plans to appoint Ambassador Johnny Carson for this role. Ambassador Carson is very well known uh, to people across the continent of Africa. He brings a wealth of experience to the position, having dedicated his 37-year career to diplomacy in Africa. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Despite the promises to make Africa a top focus of U.S. policy, not everyone is happy with the summit. The Black Alliance for Peace is a Washington, D.C.-based group that says the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit is an imperialist move to deprive Africans of their independence while ensuring Western access to valuable raw materials. A member of the group's coordinating committee is Netfa Freeman. He spoke with the news today. The summit is there to bring in heads of state from different countries. There will be a lot of events around it. They will be talking about things like they claim they'll be talking about climate change, good governance, trade relations. A lot of them will be talking about how to correct things like illicit financial flows from Africa to the United States of security, what they would characterize as peace and security issues. We should think of that as militarization on the continent. But what's not said or at least downplayed, and it has been said and is downplayed, and, and remains the goal of these summits, their concern is to challenge or get around or advance the hegemony of the United States around its concerns over the relationship between Africa and China primarily, and then now emerging with Russia. They're downplaying that now, but we know that that's been a serious concern for the United States and bipartisan, but particularly the Democrats, ever since 
AFRICOM was created in 2008, and it's important for people to know what this conference is or what the summit is or serves to do is, one, helps bring the leaders together, basically as compradors who leave their countries beholden to Western extraction of wealth, also a cover, a smokescreen for the real role and trying to, to repair what's really become evident as the U.S. role in Africa. Like, for example, we saw the destruction of Libya in 2011, where they were trying to overthrow the Libyan people's Jamaharia, where you see now an intensified and long-lasting drone war in Somalia under the guise of fighting violent extremists. And it's not that violent extremists are not a problem, but the United States caused that problem. It goes all the way back with the invasion of Somalia and the overthrow of the Islamic Council, which was the governing body in Somalia at the time, and then also the destruction of Libya, which spread jihadist weapons across the Sahel and across Africa. So they cause these problems, and then they want to come and be the solution for them. The United States primarily, but the West in general, not Russia, not China, the role of the international financial institutions like the IMF and the World Bank and uh, giving these loans that are requiring countries to privatize and bring in foreign investment and, and do things that are not in the benefit interest of the countries. None of these things are really the feature of what China and Russia have, and and we're not trying to claim that they're not out for their own interests, but African leaders have found there's an emerging shift toward China, and they're concerned with that. Even the unrest on the ground, where you see a strong anti-French sentiment, several coups in West Africa, many of them the people trained in AFRICOM, but also has emerged out of that a strong anti-French sentiment and bringing in relationships with Russia to help them address violent extremism because they feel like the West hasn't helped, the French haven't helped, and it's quickly turning into a Western, anti-Western, anti-U.S. sentiments, too, on the ground. So mm-hmm. they're concerned with these things, and they're trying to figure out how to play a different role or at least look like they're playing a different role. The United States covers such a huge area mm-hmm. of North America. You could have a huge, maybe Congo or something would, would absorb and become an Africa, the nation of Oh, yeah, I mean... We have to remember that the uh, United Socialist Africa was on the agenda during the uh, independence movements with Kwame Nkrumah, Sekou Toure, Gabriel Nasser. All of these independence movements that had to be undermined, the West were talking about continental unity as one unified nation, having a currency, all of that. Even the foundations for it, in terms of language, languages, the colonizing languages made it most convenient. But you had also already type of unifying languages like Swahili and things like they were helping with trade and all that. Unlike any other place in the world, the prospects and the idea of a united African and pan-Africanism exists in Africa, unlike any place in the world. And also the idea, the political foundations of this pan-Africanism have extended to other parts of where African people, black people are recognized and they've recognized that we've been scattered and suffering across in different places in the world because of what's happened and the transatlantic slave trade and whatnot. And so they embrace the idea that a united Africa, free from foreign domination, will not just help those on the continent of Africa itself, but also those who are of African descent in other places around the world. That's very important. Now, for Freeman is a member of the Black Alliance for Peace. The group says it plans protests and other actions all week, starting with a forum on Tuesday titled Africa Anti-Imperialist Summit, Voices from the Ground. 
and lying just a few miles east of Africa's coast on the Arabian Peninsula is a war-ravaged and blockaded country known as Yemen. Since 2015, a coalition of Arab states led by Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates intervened in Yemen on behalf of the government. The war settled into a stalemate with a Saudi-enforced blockade. According to UNICEF, more than 11,000 children have been killed or wounded in the conflict. Almost 4,000 children have been killed. The United Nations blames both sides with hindering relief, although a ceasefire was brokered last April. That's been holding ever since. An activist group working to end the Yemen conflict is Action Corp. The group says with acute malnutrition growing in Yemen, it's time for the International Monetary Fund to step up with another $650 billion no-strings-attached aid grant to Yemen. It would be the second such grant. The first was handed out last year. An activist with the group, Isaac Evans France, spoke the news today. The crisis in Yemen continues. The good news is that activists have been calling on Congress for action and calling on the administration. And this has helped result in the fact that we haven't seen the airstrikes for several months now. The ceasefire truce that ended in October has uh, not stopped all the violence, but the number of airstrikes has, has gone way down. We have not seen the airstrikes return. We want to keep it this way. We want to put pressure on Saudi Arabia to, to prevent additional airstrikes. And we also need to lift the blockade because the blockade of Yemen, the Saudi blockade, is killing civilians. And the U.S. is enabling the Saudi blockade by providing maintenance for the Saudi Air Force, which enforces the blockade. While there has been some entrance of fuel and food, medications have not been able to get into the port of Hodeida in Yemen. And we continue to see a situation where while the United States is providing spare parts for Saudi fighter jets, Yemen is unable to import spare parts for their water treatment facility plants. That's something that the Saudi blockade has prevented the entrance of his life-saving equipment so that people can have clean water, so that they can have medicine, so that they can have all the, meet the fuel needs of the economy and care for people. So Congress can end the blockade. Congress must press the Biden administration to use its leverage. And most importantly, Congress should pass a war powers resolution to end all U.S. participation in the war in Yemen that Congress never authorized. Where does the U.S. stand in all of this right now, really, beyond the fact that we're happy that they're not uh, doing the things they had been doing before, as you described? The United States had that famous fist pump with the Saudi Arabia's dictator, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. This is not the time to be playing footsie with Saudi Arabia when Saudi Arabia is murdering U.S. journalists, when the country is siding with Putin, jacking up prices of oil, and most importantly, waging this war on Yemen. You know, I recently confronted Ned Price, the spokesman for the Department of State, who's also an openly gay man like myself, and I said, how do you defend this relationship with the dictatorship, which punishes homosexuality with flogging, with the death penalty, that's violating women's rights, that continues to starve children in next-door Yemen? How do you justify that? And his justification is, well, we need constructive engagement, essentially. We need to continue to hold Saudi Arabia close to have influence over it. But that's not, that influence is not uh, panning out. 
the country is completely decimating the neighboring Yemeni people. And the other thing is that we've seen this hasn't worked in other places around the world. And the United States has such a, a double standard for different countries. So when it comes to uh, Ukraine, the United States has been there. But when it comes to Yemen, the United States has been on the side of the aggressor. And this is because of oil. And I guess just to wrap up, uh, it relates back to the Ukraine conflict between Russia and Ukraine because they're saying that uh, foodstuffs aren't getting out and that this is uh, getting in the way of, uh, of helping these countries. The ceasefire truce has been a real blessing for the people of Yemen. The de- decrease in exports of wheat from Ukraine and Russia has been a real challenge for a country like Yemen that imports so much of its food. So this is why it's so important that people in the United States continue to speak up. And we have a moment of opportunity right now with Senator Bernie Sanders last week having announced that he plans to call the question on U.S. participation in the war in Yemen and have that vote on the floor of the U.S. Senate. It could happen as early as this week. So this is a moment when I know a lot of people are are calling on their members of of Congress to to co-sponsor the Yemen War Powers Resolution and speak up for the U.S. Constitution, which says Congress has the power to declare war. And it's, it's, war making is not and shouldn't, should not be in the hands of the administration. Great. Thanks a lot. And who's the key, who's the key person in Congress uh, on the bill? And if folks are interested in more information, you can check out actioncore.org slash Yemen. And Action Core is spelled action and then C-O-R-P-S.org. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me a minute about what's Action Core. Yeah, so Action Corps is a grassroots humanitarian advocacy organization that brings together organizations for humanitarian advocacy. Cool. Anything like that? Uh, you mentioned the upcoming U.S. Africa Summit. Yeah. This is a real opportunity for the Biden administration to reiterate its support for special drawing rights, which is an IMF resource, which doesn't have conditions. It doesn't, it's not a loan that has to be paid back. It's a real opportunity to get needed resources out to countries. We're seeing right now more than double the number of people are facing acute malnutrition around the world than they were in 2019. And there's something we can do about it. And it was because of organizations of activists around the country coming together that we got the International Monetary Fund to release an unprecedented amount of resources last year and this to the tune of 650 billion dollars and we need that to happen again and that's something that secretary yellen and treasury department can advocate for at the imf the u.s has veto power at the imf this would make a really big difference and the u.s africa summit is a great opportunity for this to to be discussed during a recent lgbtq event Evans France called out State Department spokesperson Ned Price, calling him a fellow gay man and reminding him of harsh Saudi laws against homosexuals. Price responded, we have to keep the Saudis engaged. And finally, the New York Young Republican Club gathered for its annual provocation in New York City on Saturday night. There were some familiar faces, former New York mayor and Donald Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, hobnobbed with radical right-wingers, including Trump confidant Steve Bannon, newly elected Republican Congress member George Santos, and Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene, who said in a speech that if she had planned the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, 
the invaders would have won because, she says, we would have been armed. And I want to tell you something. If Steve Bannon and I had organized that, we would have won. Not to mention, it would have been armed. See, that's the whole joke, isn't it? They say that whole thing was planned, and I'm like, are you kidding me? A bunch of conservatives, Second Amendment supporters went in the Capitol without guns, and they think that we organized that? I don't think so. The reason we know so much about the occurrences during the Young Republicans Gala is because of two intrepid reporters, Hannah Gase and Michael Edison Hayden, who bought tickets under their own names to attend the event. Their account is available at the Southern Poverty Law Center website, splcenter.org. It's titled, White Nationalists, Other Republicans, Brace for Total War. Michael Edison Hayden spoke with the news about his experience. The president of this group of the New York Young Republicans is kind of this gremlin figure named Gavin Wax. He's a very much of a tough talker, for sure. I'm not sure how tough a person he is in real life, but he likes to use very pointed fascist rhetoric, and I don't use that word uh, loosely. When I say fascist, I mean friend-enemy distinction. He talks about being at war. He wants to have total war. He talks in the speech about wanting to bring the war onto the streets. They offer nothing in the way of material interest for their constituents. Everything is about sectioning things off in this war that they imagine, which is anybody who opposes Trumpism and, and sort of destroying them. That is kind of the tone of the thing. Figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene and her speech, she obviously made similar remarks talking about ratcheting things up, storming the, the Capitol building with guns, or at least evoking that image. It's important to understand that Marjorie Taylor Greene made those remarks in a private event in front of an audience that included white nationalists, radical right figures domestically, and also members of the Austrian Freedom Party, which is founded by SS officers, members of the AFD in Germany, which is a extreme radical right political party, which has been investigated by the German government for extremism. So in the context of that private event, speaking to those people, that is the kind of rhetoric that Marjorie Taylor Greene used. I don't care if she's walking it back then. I don't typically say people need to be alarmed, but I am saying it now. They People absolutely need to be alarmed. This is highly concerning. What I saw there was a fascist event through and through. Rudy Giuliani was there. Probably the only thing left of Rudy Giuliani is the familiarity of his face. Everything else is part of this whole fascist worldview. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by fascist? I mean, what you gave some hints to it from what you just described, but what did you get a feeling these folks were planning? What should we be ready for? Yeah. If you look at fascist rhetoric historically, and you look at the rhetoric that was espoused at that event, and you look at the types of people and what they believe, it all comes together very quickly. Essentially, in fascist propaganda, you are at war with your own countrymen, and you are finding scapegoats, particularly anyone opposed to your crew. Your primary goal seems to be to eliminate them. So repeatedly, every speaker talked about being at war, uh, evoking war, war against 
not a foreign adversary, but Americans, other Americans, Americans who may be conservative, but oppose Trump and Trumpism, Americans who may be liberal, Americans who may be left wing, anyone like that who is not part of their inner circle uh, is considered someone who is an enemy, someone who you're at war with, and talking about using rhetoric like saying we're going to take this into the streets, saying we're going to bring guns, that is as fascist as it gets. Again, scapegoating the other, separating the country into those who are on one side of the line and the other, and talking about destroying the other side. It doesn't seem like you're describing people who could take over America, per se. They they tell us they're at war. We are not at war. We're just trying to live our lives. But because they have declared war, we need to be vigilant. We need to be careful. We need to be taking these people seriously, monitoring who they are, where they are, what they're talking about, taking it seriously. Because if you are lazy, if you are asleep, they can take power. And you have figures like George Santos, who is just elected in a district that includes Long Island, a bunch of liberals. What is he doing there? What is he doing at this event where he was sitting next to members of the Austrian Freedom Party? He needs to answer those questions. It's a really messed up thing. Mm-hmm. And More than meets the eye yeah. going on here. More than meets the eye going on here, maybe. The White House has condemned Marjorie Taylor Greene for her boast. On Monday, Greene defended the comments as sarcasm and accused the Biden administration of trying to weaponize her joke. And that's the news for Monday, December 12, 2022. The news was written and produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.